The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Here you'll notice that it's through kindergarten that we're dismissing today, which means that for the uh, first time for some of us, first graders and second graders, this is going to be your first time in a sermon. And let me tell you how fun that is. <laughs> Seriously, if, if you are a, a parent of first graders, second graders, or if you're sitting next to one, this is going to be different for them. So it's a good thing. But if they're if Junior's a little fussy and whatnot, that, that's okay. Just we are a family here. And and if you are a first grader or a second grader. I'm going to say some things that probably will be a little complicated. You can ask your mom or your dad if, or your grandparent whoever you're sitting with, and that, that's okay too. You can talk if you need to about those sorts of things. And um, This is going to be a good experience, I think, for all of us. Let me pray. Father, it is a good thing that you give us your word and then give us opportunity to listen to it and talk about it and think about it. So thank you. We are gathered here in great expectation that you, Father, Son, and Spirit will part the heavens and part our hearts and come and speak eternal life-changing truth planting it in us and producing fruit that lasts forever. That is a high hope. And so, Lord, we pray, would you give grace to do that? Would you give your spirit to accomplish that in us? Because it's not just little kids' attention spans that wander. It's adults' attention spans as well. And we have an enemy who does not want us to hear and does not want the seed to be planted and does not want it to grow. And so I pray, Father, commission your spirit to come here and be in our midst to give a clarity and life to the words that I'm going to speak, to give direction to them, to protect them from error, and to cause them to come to hearts that are fertile soil. We ask you for the Spirit's power in that regard this morning here in this time. Move and work that your church would be grown and that your people would be changed. And that those who are not yet your people would be called in and would see the beauty of Christ as the solution to their sin. Would trust Him. Be changed and saved. Father, do that here in our midst. For the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. Amen. A few years ago while I was in seminary in Illinois, I was working a part-time job in downtown Chicago. And one day, uh, one of my coworkers who was sitting off to the side, kind of reading some online news, spoke up and said, Hey, look at this. The spokesperson for the police department just made an announcement. Yesterday was the first day in over five years that nobody was murdered in the city of Chicago. Huh. So that caused us to talking and doing a little bit of math and trying to think through how many people that was. Every day for year after year after year. Multiple people. Often. It's sobering if you think about how many murders that is in one city. That there was just one day in which there wasn't a murder in the city of Chicago. It's a sobering statistic. And unfortunately, it's untrue. Matter, the fact of the matter is that there were many murders on that one day. Now, maybe they didn't get the the title of murder, and maybe there wasn't a body, and maybe there hadn't been an actual crime committed. But even on that one day, hundreds of thousands, millions of people walked the streets of Chicago. And today, hundreds of thousands of people walk the streets of Salt Lake, bumping into others who offend them, who cross them, who block their goals and thwart their efforts which leads to frustration and anger and slander and malice, which is murder in the mind and in the heart. 
Sometimes then it becomes murder with the tongue or physical violence with the hands. But God forbids all of that, the whole gamut. Anger and malice, slander and murder. And if we're honest, we hate it. We don't want to live with it. We would love to get away from it and to live in a place that none of that was even known. And that's what we turn our attention to today in the Sixth Commandment. We've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, and over the last month and a half or so, we've been focusing on the Ten Commandments as they're found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Last week, we, we turned a corner, so to speak, in our study of the, of the commandments. A number of weeks, we've been looking at what's called the first table of the law, numbers 1 through 4. And it's called a table because those commandments kind of form a unit. They are all concerned with the worship of God, how to relate properly to God. And to clarify, I say this every week, but I need to be really clear about this. It is not how to get into relationship with God. Anybody who teaches that if you keep these commandments, then you will get into relationship with God is wrong. It's the other way around. Given that you already have been brought into relationship with God, here's now how you live in a way that pleases Him. And the first four are a unit about specifically relating to God. And then we turn the corner, moving into what's called the second table of the law, because moving away from the purely vertical relationship now into the horizontal, the second table deals with people relating to other people. Number five, fifth commandment, people relating to those in their family, and then six and following those who are out in the community at large. That brings us to the sixth commandment today. So we're going to be looking at one verse, but I'm going to read the whole setup. I'm going to go back to verse 6 and read it so we get the whole context. I'm going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. As the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And for today, you shall not murder. The verse is obviously very short. In Hebrew, it's just two words. Not, you shall murder. Really, really blunt, really clear. Perhaps some of us, though, know it as you shall not kill. A different English word there in the translation, which is totally fine as long as we understand exactly what's being talked about. This is not referring to killing of any and every sort. We're not talking about killing animals or plants, for instance. It's about people. And in the realm of people, it's not about killing people of any and every sort. It's not about self-defense, for instance, or war. Word that's translated here, kill or murder, depending on your translation. It's never used in a judicial context or in a military context. We're not talking about governments as they act as governments. We're talking about 
people, individuals. That's, that's not to say that everything that governments do in, in executing criminals or in executing wars is all good and fine. There are, of course, illegitimate and immoral actions that governments take. I'm just saying that's another issue that's not included in the Sixth Commandment. Here in this verse, we're talking about individuals acting as individuals, not as soldiers or police officers. Individuals taking the life of another individual, another human being, either through a a premeditated action, a thought-out, planned action, or a a deliberately careless one. The word can be used for all kinds of of careless taking of life, but because you can't make a law against mistakes. You can't say, thou shalt not slip up. We're not... We're not talking about mistakes. We're talking about either premeditated murder or the killing of life that's criminally responsible. For instance, if I was shooting skeet in my backyard and happened to hit my neighbor. That's illegal to do that. I didn't mean to, so it's an accident. But it's still falling under this command because it is criminally negligent. That's what we're getting at here. Individuals taking the life of individuals in either a premeditated or a criminally negligent way. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. That's the commandment. We're going to work through it by breaking it down into three observations. First observation, I'm going to unpack the meaning of the commandment itself as it's stated. So here's my first point. We must not take human life with our own hands. Pretty straightforward. We ourselves as individuals must not stretch out our hand in an attempt to take human life. That's what we must not do. And to a degree, why not, is obvious. Life is fundamental. Life is foundational. It's entirely fitting that as God moves from People to God, people to their family. The first thing he talks about when he moves out into the community at large is don't take their lives. It's obviously more important than don't take their stuff. Foundationally, don't take human life. That's pretty obvious. But right beneath the obvious, there's a theological issue that we need to, to look at. And understanding it is going to further illuminate why murder is wrong It's going to deepen it and broaden the sin involved in murder. Theologically, murder is wrong because it is high rebellion against the Lord God. It is a rebellion against the God who reigns over all of the earth. To understand that, we need to think some things through. And we're going to start with what it is we're killing when we murder. We're dealing with the lives of human beings. We're dealing with unique creatures that the Lord made. Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 1, says there, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. So right there on the very first page of the Bible, God reveals something very important about him and about us as people. He created, created, created. Three times he says that. He created us in his image. We alone, we human beings alone, are the image bearers of God. Out of all of the creation, out of everything else that God made, we are most closely connected to him. Made in his image, which is a complicated subject. I'm going to try to be brief on this. To be made in his image, to resemble him, means to carry some of his characteristics, some of his nature in ways that are fitting given the differences that we have. He's God. He's spirit. He lives outside of time. Always has. Never created. So we're different than he is. He's spirit, but we are spiritual and have spirits. And can relate to him in the soul. Spiritual beings, different than trees and rocks and animals. He's the creator. But we're very creative. And we constantly take the things that he's made and refashion them and reshape them and make more and improve and grow and change and develop. 
He's omniscient, and we yearn to learn and know. Constantly growing in and striving to expand the realm of our knowledge. To husband this earth that He's put us over. There are many ways that we humans are most like God. Anatomy isn't one of them. Soul and spirit and characteristics of being, those are the ways that we resemble Him. Sometimes totally different than anything else in creation, sometimes just to a vastly different degree. But we human beings are made in His image, are closest to Him, are His unique delight and the object of His saving work. And to strike at and kill that image is a high offense against God. Which incidentally is why Satan hates and seeks to destroy people. Not dogs, not camels, not oak trees. People. Because we bear the image of God. He can't hurt God. What, what, what's the next best thing he can do? He can attack those who bear God's image. Tear them down and destroy them. To strike the image of God is an attack on God. And when we as individuals do that, it is equally high rebellion against the Lord. It shouts out to Him, This your image means nothing to me. This right here, this your image, I regard it as of no consequence and of no value. What I do value... It's that which this image blocks, my own convenience, my personal wealth, my sick pleasure, my honor. That's what I value. And I will reach out my hand and strike down your image so as to get what I want. High rebellion. To strike the image of God for my sake. A rebellion made doubly offensive because of the audacity of the murderer to claim authority over life. Here are all the pronouns in that previous statement. I regard as of no value. I most value my honor, my wealth. The human being who raises his or her hand to strike down another image bearer is assuming the right to act as judge, jury, and executioner over that which God has made and He alone is in authority over. It is the reaching out of a hand, not just to strike an individual, but to seize the throne of God. I will reign here in my life over you. That's what murder says. And so it casts down also the first commandment, along with the sixth. You shall have no other God before me becomes, I will reign. You shall not murder becomes, and I will decide to kill. We must not rebel against God with such audacity and take human life with our own hands. Whether that life be 90 years old, trapped in dementia, suffering in pain, a financial burden with little to effectively contribute to society, as if the image of God depends on what you can contribute to our society. Or if she has a meaningful life, do not take her life. And do not help her take her own life. She's not God either. Our lives don't belong to us. They belong to Him. Which is different than saying we have to do any and every absolute thing we can conceive of to prolong life. It's different than taking it. You shall not take life whether it be 90 years old or 9 weeks old, residing still in the womb. These are the two issues that our society most struggles with. Most of us have got it pretty clear that I shouldn't walk out on the street and kill somebody. But we're a lot foggier on the 90-year-old and the 9-week-old. You shall not take life in the womb. Barely large enough to detect, let alone have meaningful conversation with, as if the image of God depended on size and ability to communicate and sustain oneself. It would be very easy at this point to veer off into discussion about abortion. And I'm not going to do that. But I do need to say two things, and I plead with you, please hear both of them together. Both of them. 
First, abortion is clearly, simply murder. Period. It's the killing of a human being before it has come out of the womb and can live on its own. And unless the pregnancy endangers another life, we have no right to kill the baby in the womb. As a little girl that I know commented when she first heard about some of the basics of abortion, she said, why would anybody want to kill a baby in their tummy? And the answer is, because that baby is inconvenient to me according to my standards at my timing. Many of us have been there with an unplanned pregnancy or with some other non-pregnancy related issue in life where what's come about has not seemed good or timely or adequately prepared for and we desperately want it out. I know what that's like. I've faced an unplanned pregnancy in my life and I know what it feels like to say, I I want an out. And against that, God says, you shall not murder. That's quick, and I hope it's clear, but I imagine that it also could be blunt and potentially a little painful if there is actually abortion in your past. So let me say the second thing here, and please hear this along with the first. That's you. There's an abortion in your past. You've broken the sixth commandment either through your own personal action or through pressuring your spouse, your wife, or your girlfriend into taking action. Either way, you're guilty of breaking the commandment. And you stand before God, guilty. What do you do with that guilt and that pain that's in your heart? Don't. Please, do not try to suppress it. Or ignore it, or deny it, or avoid it, or argue it away. It's just a collection of cells. It's not really a person. None of that's true, and most people know it. Don't go there. It's just dodging. It's just kind of trying to, to, I can't hear you. It doesn't work. Instead, face it and deal with it. Deal with it in the way that God has provided. For those, for those who deny that sin of breaking the commandment, those who deny it and walk away, the, the wrath of God remains on you. But for those who say, that is me, I have done that. God help me. For that person, God is a merciful and gracious God full of love. And has provided a single way to deal with and remove forever from your heart that guilt That burden. That's what Jesus is about. That's what the hope that is found in Jesus is about. Removing guilt from your heart. Not theoretically the guilt from somebody else's life, the real guilt in your heart. Jesus is the only perfect image bearer. We resemble God in some ways, given what's different about us. He's God. He's exactly like Him, the exact representation of His being, and came to earth and perfectly kept the sixth commandment, never taking life, but always feeding it and nurturing it and growing it. Yet, though He's not a lawbreaker, He died to pay the penalty for lawbreakers. That's what the cross is about. So the the guilt that's in your heart can be placed on Him and dealt with in God's eyes. So that He can look at you and say, My beloved, grace, grace to you who is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That happens if and only if you trust Jesus and say, Jesus, I am guilty. Please, Take my guilt and my sin and pay for it on the cross and cleanse me in my heart. Give me hope and love, please. I trust you for that. I can't find it anywhere else. Deal with Him like that. He'll wash you clean and give you a new life. That's how God can deal with your law-breaking. That's how God can deal with my law-breaking, with all of our law-breaking 
Because, well, some of us have broken the sixth commandment by actually reaching out and taking life with our own hands, whether it be on the two ends of life or somewhere in the middle, perhaps. Some of us are right there. But the rest of us who haven't physically done this need to stop and think for a second. I remember the time when I was in college and I first felt this sense of relief that, ah, I'm not breaking the Ten Commandments anymore. This is great. I became a Christian in college, and as a relatively new Christian, hadn't thought much about the Ten Commandments until some things were brought up. And I can remember sitting in a particular sermon from the, the pastor's perspective. I would have been sitting over here in the pew. I remember the church. remember how it looked. When I began to kind of dawn on me, as he was starting to talk about some of the Ten Commandments, and I realized, man... This is great. Praise God, He has grown me already so that I'm not breaking these commandments anymore. To put it in the context of today's sermon, He wasn't talking about these things exactly, but I'd be thinking, man, I haven't been involved in any euthanasia. Praise God. I haven't been involved in the abortion. Praise God. So, I mean, this is a good warning for me. I know how I shouldn't proceed if I face some of those circumstances in the future, but praise God. He has done a work in me. This doesn't really directly apply to me. I was feeling pretty good. But unfortunately, as is always the case, the pastor kept talking. <laughs> and all the sunshine went away. As I realized how far from keeping the commandments I was. And all he had to do to prove that was bring up Jesus. Which he did. The clouds set in on me. Jesus is going to tell us, as we look at him this morning, that every single one of us has broken the sixth commandment. Already today, surely again by dinner time. We're all lawbreakers. And every single one of us, we're the only of God's wrath. Turn to the second observation here. First observation, we thought a little bit about what lies behind murder, what makes it particularly evil. It's a sinful action that springs from a heart that is in rebellion against God that says, I will strike your image, it means nothing to me, and I will assume authority and the right to do that. Realizing that kind of the theological background, as I said, deepens and widens what the Sixth Commandment is about. So along those lines, here's the second observation. We must not take human life with our lips or with our hearts. We must not murder with our hands, but beyond that, or really usually before that, we must not take human life with the heart or with the lips, what we say. We could get this from just thinking about the law itself, because logically, as we've seen again and again, God, and therefore God's law, is ultimately concerned about the heart, not just behavior on the outside. So we could kind of reason this through and say, okay, this is about a behavior, but there must be a heart attitude back there behind it somewhere that God's after. That would be true, but we don't have to just reason it through. Jesus makes the implied explicit in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 21 of Matthew 5, he says, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's right out of the law. We just saw that. You break the law, murder, you'll be guilty and you face judgment. But then he continues. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh-oh. If you think that through, and I mentioned the crowd that day must have thought, what? All the sunshine runs away. And the clouds start setting in. So it's not just murder, but anger and insult and scorn. All of it together breaks the sixth commandment and makes me equally liable to the hell of fire. Not just physically taking somebody's life, 
scorning them. Same deal. Because, here's, here's the issue, all those things at the core are the same. They're different shades of the same color. They're at different places on a spectrum, but they're all on the same spectrum. It starts out with an attitude and perhaps leads to an action, but it's the attitude, the heart, that God is concerned about, that He's after. The same basic thing going on inside of me. I make a judgment, I make a determination that how you have acted or what you have said is wrong and it violates my standards. And I determine that there will be a penalty paid for it right now, in my timing, my penalty. And so I stood over my mind, or perhaps I spout something out with my lips, or maybe I actually reach out my hand and strike you. Same basic thing going on inside of here. We need to hang out here for a moment on the anatomy of anger. Anger is a desire thwarted. Think that through. Anger is a desire thwarted, blocked. An expectation or a goal that you were pursuing, you were after, and somebody got in the way and stopped it. When you're angry at another person, now, little aside here, it is conceivably, hypothetically possible that it's a righteous anger. Maybe. I'm not sure if I've ever been righteously angry in my whole life, but it is conceivably possible that I might genuinely, that you might genuinely be angry with somebody else for a great sin and injustice that they have committed against somebody else. You're angry for the honor of God being torn down and for other people being hurt. But often, even in those cases, what we're just doing is we're masking self-interested anger. I'm angry at you because of what you've done to my kids or to my husband or my wife my nephew, my neighbor, my church, it's really, I'm angry because of what you've done to me. I don't feel the same way when you do that to some other kids who live in another country somewhere. It's about me. Most of the time, even things that we might consider perhaps to be righteous anger are unrighteous, self-focused anger. It is theoretically possible, so I need to say that as an aside, and I get back to where most of us live. When you or I are angry with another person, what's going on inside of us is a judgment, a sentencing, and an executioning of them. Maybe in criticizing words or thoughts that are designed to belittle and produce harm. Maybe they're masked in sarcasm. Most of sarcasm is not funny. It's criticism. Maybe it's muttered under our breath. Maybe it's saved for the ears of somebody who's liable to be sympathetic to you. It's all the same thing going on inside, though. It all breaks the sixth commandment. Jesus says so. So does the Apostle John, in even more clear language. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. John says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Not everyone who hates his brother and then kills him is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John. Because a life of hatred is a life of murdering in the heart with the lips. We must not take life with our lips or with our hearts. This should get all of our attention. Some of you are terrible at hiding your anger or rage. Maybe in certain settings, but in other settings you're just terrible at it. You fly off the handle at any and everything. And what comes out is malice. Right on your sleeve. And everybody who knows you knows it. And frequently in life they find themselves saying, Oh no, that's going to really tick so and so off. Because they've seen it repeatedly tick so and so off. They know it's going to happen. 
You criticize, you ridicule, you argue, you fight, you slander, you malign, and you generally respond with anger in great frequency. And everybody knows it. Others of you, though, are like me. And you do a much better job of containing your emotion. I'm kind of an emotional flatline person. I go up and down. I'm pretty much right there. And a lot of people who might know me to some degree might wonder if I ever get mad. If you know me a little bit more, you would know that I do get mad. But do I rage? Am I angry? If, if you're like me and, and you do a pretty good job of controlling your emotions, don't be deceived and think this is not about you, that this is not your problem. Look at your heart and look at the, the private situations. Maybe you, as you drive home from the meeting in your car all by yourself, maybe that's when you tell the person off. Maybe you just seethe inside. Dump it on somebody else. Or go home and punch a hole in the wall or chop wood all night. Because you're angry and you want to pour it out on something. You know, you can't pour it out on that person, so I'm going to take it out on this inanimate object. Some of us are married, and the spouses know, my spouse is both of those people. The latter one in public and the former one in private. And you rage at home and smile at church. This is your issue. We must not do this. It is sin. And realize where it comes from. I'm going to talk a little more about in the next point here about how to get rid of it. But realize first, this is the part where you say, that is me. This is my issue. I I assume the role of God and I make judgments and determinations about what should and should not be and then I act to bring it about, to deliver myself to the situation I should be in and to punish you in some way or another. Don't rationalize your anger. It is not just your personality. It is not a disorder. It is sin, a desire thwarted. Because this is a commandment, there's a lot of sternness in it. But we could flip it and think about this from another angle for just a minute. There is also much misery in constantly being mad. You know that. You, if you live in one of those types of relationships, or if you find yourself constantly falling back to that, it's miserable. Now, for a moment, it feels good to tear them down or, or build yourself up. But then, the fact that nobody wants to talk to you, right there, that's miserable. The fact that there's conflict and discord constantly in your life, that's misery. The psalmist says how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then he has some beautiful imagery about oil pouring down, oil of blessing pouring down the high priest, down his beard. Shining and glistening like the sun, like dew falling on a mountain. It's beautiful. And you don't know any of that because you're angry. Constantly reaching out, at least with your heart, maybe with your lips, to strike against other people. We want to get rid of this. We have to, because it's a commandment, but we also want to. If it's you, you don't want this. We don't want this as a community. That's a major barrier to community, is it not? We don't want that as a community. You don't want this. Which brings us to our third observation. We must move towards obedience and away from misery by loving with our hearts our hands, lips. 
We must move towards obedience and away from misery by loving with our whole being. Again, we could think this through logically. We could, we could say, well, if I'm not supposed to take life, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to grow it and build it and enhance it. But John is explicit on this point. First John 3, the same passage where he says that one who hates his brother is a murderer. In that passage, this is verses 11 to 18, if you want to jot it down and look at it later. First John 3, 11 to 18. He's working two concepts in opposite to each other. And the first one is the, the hateful murder, the anger. Talked about that already. He uses Cain as an example who hated his brother. Tells us that we're not supposed to be like that. But the opposite concept is what he calls the message we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And in verse 16, By this we know love. He, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's love for a brother rather than hate. Lay down your life for him. And then verse 18, Little children, let us love not in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. So he's working these two things. Put that together. It's don't do one, do do the other. So put off one and don't just stay there as if you can be in a static place, but put off and put on. If you think of clothing, you've got some set of clothing that's dirty. You take off the dirty clothing and you don't stop naked. You put on new clothing. Well, you put off anger and malice and envy and hatred and judgmentalism and the attitudes of superiority that feed it, and you put on then sacrificing, serving love. We must love with our hearts, our lips, and our hands. Great. So try harder at that. Let's pray. Can't stop there. Because you all know it does not work to just try harder. There, there, is, there is willpower involved. There is a, a commitment involved. But it does not work to just say, I'm going to suck it up and try to love more. There's, there's a little more to it than that. How do we get there? How do, what does John think? Did you hear what he said? Right in that passage, he gives us a clue. <clears throat> By this we know love. That He laid down His life for us. That's Jesus. And therefore, we ought to do that for our brothers. Here's what you should be because of what He was. This is only commanded in light of Him. Which says, I cannot pursue this independent of anything else by itself. I'm only going to try to be more loving. I need to pursue loving with Jesus in view. What He did to love me, He laid down His life for me. Therefore, I will lay down my life for you. With Him in view. Not left back here somewhere. That's what John says. Moses and the Ten Commandments say the same thing. Where do the Ten Commandments begin? Verse 6, I read it this morning. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Therefore, do these things. Do them in light of me, the God who delivered you. Walk in this path in view of who I am and what I have done. I am the God who reigns over all of the earth, and I bent that power to save you out of slavery. Walk with me. This, this is a supernatural spiritual change that I'm talking about here. So I can't give you a program that says, do these three things and then you will be more loving. It doesn't quite work that way. God has to open eyes. But He opens eyes while we are looking. And what we are to be looking at is the Lord our God who has delivered us from slavery in Jesus laying down His life for us. And then likewise, love your brother. So we look at, and what happens as we look at that and pray, God, open my eyes. That He does. And a supernatural change happens inside. And I am finding it more and more abhorrent that I would seize the throne of God and pass judgment on His creatures. He is the Lord my God. 
And he has made these in his image. I would value that so little and value my own things. But, oh, there's a change that happens in my perspective as I'm looking at him. Now, that's a supernatural thing. So I can't tell you, you know, here's three steps to do this. But I can say a couple of things that might be a little helpful. That will help move us towards obedience and away from misery. Obviously, the, the first thing that I could say is if we need to, to kind of pursue the, the commitment to loving with Jesus and God's deliverance in view, where do I look at that? In the scriptures and specifically in his message of salvation in the gospel. I contemplate the cross. I contemplate my sin and his forgiveness. You have to look at these things if he's going to open your eyes and help you see them. You, you can't walk away from the Bible, walk away from prayer, walk away from other Christians and expect to somehow be changed. You will be changed by those things that are influencing you, the world. You've got to be around the things of God if they're going to influence you, if he's going to use them as tools in your life. That's the first thing. But the second thing, I say that a lot, but the second thing is the one that I think many people miss in the fight against anger towards love. Spend time identifying why you are angry. Because what this does, I th- think of it like this. Think of uh, a cross-section of a piece of earth. And above the ground you have all these weeds growing. And beneath the ground you have all kinds of roots growing. Anger is the visible weed on the top. And if you just attack only anger itself, the expression, whether it be the thought in your mind, I'm angry at this person, or the sarcastic word, or the insult, or the actual violence, if you only attack that, it's like mowing weeds. They will come back quickly. So to only think, don't be angry. God, help me to not be angry. I'm going to look at the cross and see how good you are, and I'm going to try to not be angry. It's not going to work. You've got to get below the surface to the weeds because anger is a desire thwarted. What are you after? That's the roots. What are you seeking and then not getting makes you angry? Maybe it's something as simple as peace and quiet. I get mad at the kids because I want peace and quiet and they just aren't giving it to me. Maybe it's respect, justice as you perceive it, convenience and comfort. Whatever it is, there's something that you're chasing and is getting blocked. Put your finger on that because that thing is going to lead back eventually to me and what I want. I want to order the world according to my standards so as to get, in my timing, what I'm after. It's going to lead back to me, 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 which should lead to repentance. A letting go of my desire for honor and respect from people at work. A letting go of the convenience of not getting cut off in traffic and not running into road work and so that I can be there on time. Have a peaceful drive. The, the convenience of peace and quiet. Turn away from my desire for those things. And I realize, that, you know, what, the reason I'm angry is that my heart's set on that stuff rather than on Christ. So repent from setting my heart on that stuff and turn to Him. Why would I do that? Well, look at Him in His deliverance and at the cross. He's much better than having a life that's ordered around peace and quiet or honor and respect. The Lord bestows honor and favor. The Lord is, in His presence, there is fullness of joy. I don't need peace and quiet for that. And then I can pursue peace and quiet in a non-angry way, if that's appropriate. And where there actually is, if one of the things I find that I'm pursuing is actually a real injustice, because we face those things in this world. There, are, there is such a thing as real injustice. What do you do with that? What did Jesus do with that? 
You could jot down 1 Peter 2, 21-23, where Peter tells us that Jesus left us an example. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When insulted, He did not lash out. If there was ever an injustice done, it was the crucifixion of Jesus. As they spit on Him and beat Him and mocked Him and scorned Him, He had every right to say, no, 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 let me clarify something here. And silent like a sheep led to slaughter, he went to the cross, as Peter says, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so he cut off the root. The root of desiring real justice in this world, which is deserved and right. He cut off and threw it away and said, Father, you will deal with that exactly correctly. You will judge justly. I'm going to entrust that to you. Hang my heart on you. Therefore, not be angry. More could be said on all of that, but I think that gives some tracks to run down. Put your finger on what it is that you actually are angry about. What it is you want that's being thwarted. Repent of that. Turn to Christ in that area. And then fight against anger on the top of the surface. We're going to move towards communion right now, and I want to give you a chance here in silence to think this through. Maybe this is an issue for all of us. Maybe it is a particular issue for you. Think through. Try to put your finger on as best you can. Try to put your finger on what it is I'm angry about, what I want that I'm not getting. Maybe for some of us, what you need to write down is, talk to so-and-so about this later. Either to apologize to them or to have them help you work through what's going on in your heart. Maybe a parent, spouse, friend. But take a moment now to, to begin the process of kind of thinking it through and trying to put your finger on it. And I'm going to close with some prayer in just a minute. Father, I pray that you would speak and continue to speak to those of us in this room. As we move towards communion and we look at the cup and the bread and we partake of them, would you help us to see you and to, to be drawn to you in our hearts, drawn to you and away from our own agendas and our own desires. Help the conversations, maybe just, that are just maybe thoughts, maybe there'll be physical conversations. Help the conversations to continue as we try to put our finger on what we need to address Give grace and heart-changing mercy. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.